The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. I have been busy the last few weeks, but I'm glad to be back with a new episode. Before I get into this episode, I wanted to share a comment I read in a case indexed as R.V. Mohammed, 2021 ONSC 2336. It's from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. In this case, the police received information that a man named Mohammed was selling drugs and was armed with a gun. The police, driving an unmarked van, spotted Mohammed in a high-crime area known for drug-related activity. He was riding an electric bike and the police saw he was carrying a fanny pack-type bag over his shoulder. The experienced officers variously testified to the bag's appearance, being weighted or having something in it. The officers believed Mohammed stared at them and made an abrupt U-turn, which the officers interpreted as an attempt to evade. Based on these factors, the police decided to arrest Mohammed. The officers approached him, identified themselves as police, and one officer touched the fanny pack. This officer felt something heavy, metal, and with sharp corners. Believing it was a firearm, the officer yelled, Gun! and a struggle ensued. Mohammed was tackled to the ground and the fanny pack was opened. Police found a semi-automatic firearm in it, loaded with 13 rounds of 9mm hollow-point ammunition in an overcapacity magazine. Now you can read the decision for yourself to come to your own conclusions, but the judge in this case found the grounds for arrest were not objectively reasonable, thus the arrest was unlawful. She goes on and finds two charter breaches. Because the arrest was not lawful, Mohammed had been arbitrarily detained, and the search incident to the unlawful arrest was unreasonable, a Section 8 breach. So when the judge assessed whether the evidence should be excluded under Section 24-2, she said this, quote, Even after the officers located Mr. Muhammad, there were no exigent circumstances that required his immediate arrest. While the officers stated that, believing Mr. Muhammad had a gun, they acted out of concern for public safety, there was no suggestion that Mr. Muhammad was about to discharge the gun, which was zipped up in the bag. Now, the legality of the arrest aside, is this judge actually saying that when the police believe a drug trafficker is on the street selling drugs and is armed with a gun because the person is not poised to shoot it and it is tucked away in their fanny pack, somehow an immediate arrest is not warranted? I would wonder how the judge would feel if she believed someone sitting in her courtroom had a gun in their pack. Do you think she would alert courtroom security? Or would she have no concern because the person wasn't pointing it at anyone and it was securely zipped up in their pack? Fortunately, the judge doesn't have to worry about such a scenario because there are other people who put themselves in harm's way to ensure she is safe. Now on with the episode about a gun and a search incidental to detention, including the search of a vehicle. Although there are two accused people, the case is cited as R. V. Ahmed, 2022, ONCA640. It's a 46-page Ontario Court of Appeal decision and a link to it can be found in the episode notes. Remember, facts matter. And by understanding this case, you may be able to use some of the legal language and reasoning drawn from it when you need to justify your actions. So let's review the facts. 
At about 8.16 p.m., the superintendent of a Toronto apartment building called 911 to report hearing the sound of four gunshots near his location. The superintendent said he saw a dark blue or black four-door vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed approximately five minutes after he heard the gunshots. The police then received a separate 911 call. This caller said he heard the sound of four gunshots in the same area. He told police he saw a dark-colored vehicle, possibly a Dodge Charger, enter a nearby plaza. He also said he saw a blue van leaving the scene as well as a third car with its hazard lights flashing. As expected, several police officers were dispatched and attended the scene. While en route, two officers investigated a Toyota that was stopped in the area with its hazard lights flashing, but satisfied themselves this vehicle was not the car involved with the gunshots. The officers then proceeded to the apartment building. As they were parking outside the building at about 8.28 p.m., so about 12 minutes after receiving the first 911 call, a black charger pulled into the driveway and parked in front of the apartment building. After parking the car on the driveway, the driver, Mr. Ahmad, got out of the charger and walked toward the apartment building. He was on his cell phone. One of the officers got out of the police cruiser and called out to Ahmad, who turned around and walked back toward the officer. This officer told Ahmad that the police were investigating reports of gunfire in the area and that the vehicle he was driving matched the description of a vehicle that may have been involved. Police also approached the Charger. There were two men in it. Mr. Isaac was seated in the front passenger seat and Mr. Yusuf was seated directly behind him in the right rear passenger seat. Police explained to the two men that they were investigating the possible involvement of a Charger in a recently reported shooting in the area. Both men became argumentative, questioned the basis on which the vehicle had been stopped, and interrupted the officers' responses to their questions. In the officers' view, the two men seemed nervous. More police officers arrived at the scene. Yusuf and Isaac were instructed to exit the Charger, which took some persuasion. When they did get out, they left both passenger doors open. This made the vehicle's interior accessible. The occupants were patted down, but no weapons or contraband were found. One of the officers then walked back towards the Charger. He put his head through the open rear passenger door and examined this portion of the inside of the vehicle using his flashlight. Within seconds, he alerted the other officers that he had seen a firearm in the vehicle. All three men were arrested and advised of their Section 10B charter rights. Following the arrest, the Charger was sealed and a search warrant for the vehicle was obtained. Police found a loaded restricted firearm with an extended magazine on the floor of the vehicle in front of where Yusuf had been sitting. The gun was under the front passenger seat with its magazine protruding out to the rear passenger footwell. The police also seized a cell phone containing many videos and photographs. Some of the photos showed a gun with an extended magazine. All three men were each charged with firearms offenses. So I think you know where this is going. When this went to trial in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, the men argued that the gun should be excluded as evidence because the police breached their rights under Sections 8, 9, and 10B of the Charter. Section 8 concerns search or seizure. Section 9 is about arbitrary detention. And of course, Section 10B engages the right to counsel. The trial judge ruled the investigative detention and protective pat-down searches were lawful and the officers were justified in their delay of advising the men of their Section 10B charter rights to counsel immediately upon detention. The officers were concerned with their safety, and the three-minute delay between detention and arrest occurred during a fluid and dynamic situation where the officers were attempting to establish control over the vehicle's occupants. However, the trial judge concluded that the police breached Section 8 when the officer stuck his head into the car in the area where Yusuf had been seated because there was no evidence for why the officer did this. 
Unfortunately, the officer who found the gun did not testify and the judge felt he could not determine what grounds informed his decision to search the rear of the car. This officer was too ill to testify because he was suffering from PTSD and the judge refused to admit his testimony from the preliminary inquiry. However, despite finding a Section 8 breach, the judge nevertheless admitted the gun under Section 24.2 of the Charter. After the trial, the judge found Ahmed had been driving the Charger when it was involved in an exchange of gunfire with another vehicle, the same gunfire reported by the 911 callers. The judge also found that Yusuf was in the Charger when the exchange of gunfire took place and either used the gun or made Ahmed aware that he had the gun. The trial judge further found that Yusuf had placed the gun under the passenger seat immediately in front of him to conceal it from the police. As for Isaac, he was acquitted of all charges because there was a realistic possibility he may have entered the Charger just before it drove up to the apartment building and was not in the vehicle when the exchange of gunfire occurred. Yusuf was convicted of five weapons-related offenses and sentenced to 40 months in prison, less credit for time served. Ahmed was convicted of two offenses and sentenced to 18 months, less time served. Some ancillary orders were also imposed. So what do you do when you get convicted of a crime because the evidence you wanted tossed out was not excluded by the trial judge? You appeal to a higher court and argue the judge made mistakes. Well, that is just what happened here. Ahmed and Yusuf challenged their convictions to the Ontario Court of Appeal, arguing that the trial judge was wrong to conclude that their detentions and that the searches were lawful, and in doing so, he erred in admitting the gun as evidence. So let's break this down by looking at each alleged charter breach as a separate issue. After all, that's how the courts look at these matters. Let's start with the detention and Section 9 of the Charter. Ahmed and Yusuf argued the police did not have the necessary grounds to detain them. This lack of grounds would render their detentions unlawful and therefore arbitrary. The Court of Appeal examined the requirements for an investigative detention. The framework is quite simple and all cops should know this. There are two components a court will consider. Number one, a police officer must have reasonable grounds to suspect that the detainee is implicated in the criminal activity under investigation. And number two, the decision to detain must be reasonable on an overall assessment of all the circumstances. The investigative detention analysis requires a common sense and practical approach. So just why did the trial judge find the police had reasonable grounds to detain the three men in the charger to investigate their potential involvement in the reported gunfire? It was fairly obvious. The charger matched the descriptions of the vehicle that was seen speeding away from the approximate location of the gunshots. This supported a reasonable suspicion that the occupants had knowledge of what occurred. Of course, part of any defense strategy is to poke holes in the officer's reasonable suspicion. In this case, the defense suggested that the delay between the time the gunshots were heard and the time of the men's detention, some 18 minutes, somehow detracted from the officer's grounds. It was argued that by the time the officers arrived on scene and detained the men, the information provided by the 911 callers was stale. But the detention actually occurred about 13 minutes after the initial 911 call had been received by the police. The police responded expeditiously and promptly to the 911 call. And the incident was serious. And at the time the gunshots were heard, numerous individuals, including a number of children, were walking nearby. Since this was a serious risk to public safety, it was entirely appropriate for the officers to continue to investigate the incident when they detained the men. And even though the vehicle was described as possibly a charger, which was less than a definitive description of the vehicles involved in the incident, a charger was the very vehicle observed by the officers when they arrived on scene. 
The fact that the charger matched the description provided by the second 911 caller provided a clear nexus between the vehicle's occupants and the incident under investigation. And of course, the charger was parked outside the very building where the 911 call had originated. The fact that one of the 911 callers had observed the charger speeding away from the scene 18 minutes earlier did not preclude the possibility that the vehicle might have returned to the location. Now what about the delay in advising the men about their right to counsel under Section 10B? When the men were initially detained, they were not advised of their right to counsel. It wasn't until some three minutes later when the men were arrested that they were informed. It was argued there was no justification for any delay in providing the men with the right to counsel immediately upon detention. Even though Section 10B requires the advisement of the right to counsel without delay, which has been interpreted as meaning immediately, the trial judge excused the delay because of the circumstances. And the Court of Appeal agreed. The arrest scene was fluid and dynamic. The police were responding to reports of gunshots. There were serious concerns about the possibility that one of the charger's occupants was armed with a firearm. It took some time for the officers to persuade the two passengers to exit the car so that pat-down searches could be conducted. In fact, the pat-down search of Isaac was not even complete before the arrest of the occupants was called for. And not only were the officers concerned with the possibility that the suspects were carrying a firearm, they were also aware that a firearm could have been hidden in the charger. Its passenger doors had been left open while the pat-down searches were being conducted and the interior of the vehicle was therefore accessible to the three men. The three-minute delay was justified and did not amount to a Section 10B charter breach. Now, how about the pat-downs? Were they lawful? Again, to me, this seems like a no-brainer, but plenty of ink has spilled on these types of analysis. In this case, the Ontario Court of Appeals said this about the law. Quote, The law is clear that the police have the power to briefly detain individuals for investigative purposes and to conduct a limited pat-down or safety search incident to that detention. When an officer has reasonable grounds to believe that their safety or that of others is at risk, the officer may engage in a protective pat-down search of the detained individual. End quote. Here the trial judge found, and the Court of Appeal agreed, the circumstances established the necessary reasonable grounds to believe that a potential imminent threat to safety existed and that a pat-down search of the charger's occupants was reasonably necessary. A car matching the charger's description was seen speeding away from the scene of gunfire, and its occupants might have a firearm. Under the circumstances, it was objectively reasonable for the officers to conduct a protective pat-down search of the occupants who were found in a charger and in the vicinity of the reported gunfire. Plus, the pat-downs were brief, non-intrusive, and did not go beyond what was appropriate in the circumstances. Now, the car search required a deeper dive. Unlike the trial judge, who found the car search unreasonable, the Court of Appeal ruled that there was no Section 8 violation when the officer stuck his head through the open rear passenger door. Safety searches incident to an investigative detention are not limited to pat-downs. In some cases, a search beyond a pat-down may be necessary. This, of course, all depends on the circumstances. The Court of Appeal said it this way, quote, The 911 calls and the circumstances of how the occupants in the charger came to be investigated provided specific, articulable, and reasonable justification for the officer to look in the area where Yusuf had been sitting for safety. Although the officers did not find anything from the pat-down search, given the nature of the call, the fact the call had been made only shortly before the occupants were detained, and the possibility that one of the occupants of the vehicle was armed with a firearm, the officers could not eliminate the possibility that there was a gun to be accounted for. End quote. And only about three minutes had elapsed between the time the occupants of the charger were detained and the discovery of the gun. Based on the totality of the circumstances, looking into the car was a modest extension of the pat-down search and was reasonable. 
because specific and articulable safety concerns called for it. As the Court of Appeal put it, quote, a pat-down alone would be pointless if the occupants could simply return to the car and arm themselves with a gun left in easy reach, end quote. So looking into the car was reasonable, but what about seizing the gun? Well, its seizure was justified by the common law plain view doctrine. Plain view allows police to seize evidence of a crime or contraband without a warrant provided four criteria are met. Number one, the officer must be lawfully positioned relative to where the item is found. Here, the police officer was lawfully entitled to stick his head through the open passenger door and shine his flashlight into the rear footwell area. Therefore, he was lawfully positioned relative to where the gun was found. Number two, the nature of the item must be immediately apparent as constituting evidence of a crime or contraband. The officer saw the item, recognized it as a firearm, and immediately called out he saw a gun. Number three, the item must have been discovered inadvertently. The extended magazine of the gun, as well as the bottom part of its handle, was protruding from under the front passenger seat into the rear passenger footwell where the officer found it. The gun was not fully concealed. No further deliberate search was required beyond what the officer was lawfully entitled to do. And number four, the item must be visible without an exploratory search. Remember, plain view is a seizure authority only. It does not allow you to search. The gun was visible without the officer performing an exploratory search for it. It was seen protruding from under the seat when the officer looked inside the charger and observed the interior of the car. And the trial judge rejected the defense claims that the officer actually reached under the front passenger seat with his arm and pulled the firearm out so that it was partially visible. Nice try on that one, defense team. I must also warn you that the Court of Appeal rendered a caution, something it has done before when justifying protective searches of vehicles incident to investigative detention. I think they are speaking directly to the police. Here is what the Court of Appeal said. Quote, I would emphasize that these reasons should not be read as giving the police carte blanche power to search vehicles incident to investigative detention. The officer's actions in this case were justified on the basis of the totality of these circumstances, especially the pressing and urgent threat to public safety and the modest extension of the pat-down search, end quote. And this isn't the first time the Ontario Court of Appeal has made such a remark. In R.V. Plummer, a 2011 case, the majority commented, quote, I would emphasize that this should not be read as giving the police carte blanche power to permit searches of bags or vehicles incident to investigative detention. Such a search demands satisfactory proof of a serious concern for officer safety that requires something more than the initial pat-down. And in R.V. Lee, a 2017 case, the majority put it this way, quote, Importantly, this decision must not be read as condoning an unlimited search of a car for police or public safety purposes whenever there is an investigative detention. The jurisprudence makes it clear that it is the totality of the circumstances that must be considered in every case. It is a very factually driven analysis, end quote. So let's wrap this up. What was the end result of this case? The police did not breach any charter rights and the gun was properly admitted as evidence. But Ahmed's and Yusuf's convictions were overturned on different grounds because the trial judge made some major mistakes in other evidential rulings. What are some of the legal lessons the police can learn from this case? Well, there's nothing really new here, but it is a good review of police powers during an investigative detention. Here are some things I take away from this case. Number one, there is no automatic right to conduct a search of a detainee or their vehicle. Both the detention and search require a separate analysis. The detention requires reasonable grounds to suspect that the detainee is implicated in the criminal activity under investigation. 
and the decision to detain must be reasonable in all of the circumstances. The search, too, must be independently justified. An officer must have reasonable grounds to believe that their safety or that of others is at risk. Just because a person is lawfully detained does not provide the police with an unfettered right to search them or their vehicle. Number two, the Mann case, the seminal Supreme Court of Canada decision dealing with investigative detention and search, dealt with a pat-down. But its underlying rationale was the protection of police officers and others from harm that could have been avoided through a minimally intrusive search. Men recognized the unpredictable, dynamic, and sometimes dangerous context in which the police are obliged to discharge their duties. But this protective search power is not a license to search for evidence and is distinguishable from the power to search incidental to a lawful arrest. This safety rationale is why courts have noted that the search need not be confined to the person and has been incrementally and modestly extended beyond a physical pat-down. Vehicles are not necessarily off-limits in proper circumstances, but any safety concerns must be specific and articulable. But remember the warnings from the Ontario Court of Appeal. The police do not have carte blanche power to search vehicles incident to every investigative detention. This should put you on notice that vehicle safety searches incident to detention will be the exception, not the rule. Number three, your search must also be conducted in a reasonable manner. This includes its duration. It should generally be brief, and the detainee is under no obligation to answer questions posed by the police. The reasonableness of an investigative detention will be assessed in light of all of the circumstances, including the extent to which the interference with individual liberty is necessary for you to perform your duty, the liberty that is being interfered with, and the nature and extent of that interference. And finally, number four, facts drive the analysis. At the end of the day, however, you need to make the call. You will need to decide at the roadside, without a lot of time for reflection, whether you will engage in a pat-down or search the vehicle of a detainee. You will process any information you have and the observations you have made through the lens of your training and experience. These calls are not easy to make. Many times they will be rushed. You will act on limited and less than complete information. It may be dark out and you might be alone cover can seem like a lifetime away. Your challenge is to apply the rules and guidance provided by the courts to the real world. But cases are littered with appellate courts that are split on the application of a particular police power to the facts. If judges cannot agree on the application of the law to a particular set of facts, how can we always expect police officers to have understood and properly applied the law on the fly when safety is actually at risk? I think I've said enough. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.